All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana. And I'm Kristen. And we are extremely pleased to welcome our next guest, actor, writer, director, producer, Peter Fascinelli. Peter, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. No, thanks, Appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. So we got a lot to talk about, but I think the first thing I want to discuss with you is Running with the Devil. The film yep. written and directed by Jason Cabell was released this past Friday. And uh, you play the character of number one. And we're kind of wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you got involved in that project and your overall thoughts on on the experience. Sure. Uh, Jason Cabell reached out to my agents and uh, he's putting together a cast. Uh, he already had Nick Cage. I think he was just had signed on Lawrence Fishburne and he was putting together the rest of the cast. And so I'd read it and I met with Jason at a restaurant in uh, Beverly Hills. We talked about the role. We talked about the movie. And I just got, I really got along well with Jason and I liked him a lot, you know, and that, that goes a long way because you get to a certain point in your career, you just want to work with good people, uh, people that you like and trust. And I, and I, there's something that I just trusted that I thought I, he was very passionate about this film and I thought he was going to make a, a good one. So, uh, he also had a good cast growing. I've been a big fan of Nick Cage and, and Lawrence Fishburne for a long time now. So I was excited to, to, to be in the same film with them. Lawrence Fishburne and Nick Cage are excellent. That was a good choice on Jason, I think. Yeah. What a powerful little dynamic that he had. I didn't, I wasn't aware of this until I, I met them and started working with them, but they've known each other for a very long time. Like, yeah. uh, I think they met back when Lawrence was, uh, you know, in his late teens, early 20s, they have a lot of history together. So when you have a uh, history with somebody and you get to work with them. So they were they were buddies on set. They already had a good relationship too, I guess, huh? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So Running with the Devil, um, it had a number of different filming locations. Are there any interesting experiences that you had had during the shoot with the different locations you guys had to go to? I shot in New Mexico, Albuquerque, and I shot a little bit in Colombia. And, and it's my second film. I shot a movie called Gallows Hill. When I shot that film, everybody on my team was really nervous, like, you know, about going to Colombia, that, that, you know, the word that there's a lot of kidnappings there, but I found it to be rather safe and, and I enjoyed my time there. And, and so when this film came around again, I had a new team and they were worried about Colombia. And I said, no, I've shot there already. But truth be told, when I got to New Mexico, New Mexico, Albuquerque, the first day Jason was uh, said to me uh, at the hotel, he said, don't go too far down to your right. They found a dead body there. <laughs> wow, that's good. And you guys didn't use that for the film. That's amazing. <laughs> I was in New Mexico that I was in Colombia after um, that. Well, we're grateful you didn't get kidnapped out there. And uh, I'm glad you all stayed safe. So how was it working with Jason Cabell? I mean, your overall impression, I know you said you had a great first impression meeting him and then getting yeah. to work with him on set and on location. How was that? What I really loved about Jason is he's one of those guys that, you know, even if he's not sure about how to do something, he just figures it out and he does it, you know, and he co he comes in with such such confidence, not egotistical, but like like a strong confidence, you know, and I remember the first day where uh, I filmed, I worked with Leslie Bibb and I had known Leslie a little bit. So that's always helpful when you know, you know, each other a little bit, uh, not, not too much. I mean, I, I've just met her through the years at a, certain events and I've had conversations with her through the years. And so it was nice to talk to her again. And now we're working together and, and uh, you know, we were going to all grab dinner and she said, you know, I'm going to go to sleep early because 
oh god, this is my first day. She she's like first day is like first day jitters because you're it's like first day at school, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so the next morning when we went to shoot, I remember she was a little on edge, and I said, you know, you're super talented, you're gonna be fine. And I remembered we had just done a scene with Jason Cabell that morning where we walked down this hallway, and Jason is actually. Uh, in the film, he, he plays a character, just one scene, you know, he comes in and he came in, he only delivered one line, but he did it with such confidence. And here's a guy who's now, you know, really it's his first film was his first feature was kind of a smaller little film, but this one is a bigger budget and he's got bigger actors. And now he's actually acting in the film in this one scene. And, uh, and he was so poised and confident. And I remember saying, Leslie, just, Take a page out of Jason's book, man, because he's, uh, you know, he, he's done, he hasn't done any of this and he's, he's got that confidence. So, you know, sometimes I don't know if he was faking it or what, but sometimes like you could feel when somebody has that confidence, he just had that. Yeah. And that was really nice. I mean, what a and, confident uh, individual too. I mean, with what he's done and accomplished in his life. Well, it, but you know, he came out like maybe five years ago or. And so L.A. had done nothing, and he was like, I'm going to make movies. And, like, within five couple years, he's directing, you know, Nick Cage, Lawrence Fishburne, a whole team of great actors, and and, uh, and wrote it. And, uh, and so I was just really impressed because he, he has this, like, Navy SEAL training of, like, you know, this immense focus. And he just puts all that energy and focus right on something, and he just makes it and wills it to happen. And just recently, he signed on to Instagram, and he was like, yeah, the they, uh, publicity team made me get the Instagram thing. Uh, but I, he, he said, I'll figure it out. Didn't ask me for any advice. Didn't ask me, like, do you do this or what do you do? And just said, I'll figure it out. And within, like, a couple of days, I think he had, like, 10,000 followers. <laughs> He's that like that, though, very self – what's the word? Like, self-efficient where where he doesn't rely on other people to get stuff done. He just does it, you know, and I admire that. Really admire his work ethic. Would you look forward to working with him again if the opportunity presented itself? Hundred percent. Already uh, talked to him about it. Like we're we're already talking about doing something else together. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So what I want to ask you about is, you know, you're you're playing the character of Keith Rainier in the movie The Next Name Called A Mother's Nightmare. What was your knowledge of the real life events? Because that this all kind of came together rather quickly. This story is still relatively fresh and new. Yeah. Um, I had just read some articles in, in the news, so I really wasn't aware of all the inner workings of it, but I got a phone call and they said, hey, would you want to play Keith Rainier in this film about the Nexium cult? And I have three daughters and three sisters, and, and I just was so curious as to the how and the why. Like, how does something like this happen? Why do people follow people like Keith Rainier? Like, how and why does he do the things that he does? Like, what makes this guy kind of tick, you know? And what makes people follow him and do do the things that he ended up having them do? I mean, they were women were branding themselves with his initials on it. I'm like, how? How? And how can we tell this story so people are aware and it doesn't happen again? And so, uh, so I said yes, and I, and I and I, I I ended up doing the. The film and, I, and the, what I got out of it, the answers that I found were it was uh, time and grooming because he would over time gain your trust. And over time, 
he would give you enough tidbits of self-help information that made you feel like this guy is helping my life. And then once you feel like he's helping you, then all of a sudden you're like, all right, whatever he's doing must be for the greater good. Meanwhile, it's for his greater good, you know? So that's what's scary is like the people that followed him weren't naive, weren't, uh, they were just, I, I mean, it could have been me, you know, you, you take this self-help kind of course or weekend kind of thing. And, and you're like, oh, that's helpful. And then you go to the next level and the next level and you're just peeling away the onions. And then years later, you're like in a threesome sex cult. And you're like, how did this happen? You know, but if, if you know, if he walked up to people and was like, hey, want to have a threesome with me? They would, he would get slapped, you know, but he would literally spend five to ten years grooming people and then all of a sudden you know it's like the the frog in the in the boiling water analogy you know they're turning up the heat they don't even know that they're in the boiling water after a while they're all of a sudden in boiling water and they can't get out you know yeah Yeah. and it's the conditioning you know of somebody it's like the stockholm syndrome you know you get caught up in something and then you 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 don't even before you know it you can't get out so i mean that's it's good, I think, to have done something, a project like that, to shed some light on the inner workings of something that can be so tragic and can be so subtly, inch by inch, drawing that line in the sand. So, Yeah. And, and it, was, it was tough for me because, you know, it wasn't a character that has a lot of redeeming qualities. So, you know, I, I've played bad guys before, but it's always fun to play the bad guy that you love to hate, you know? Yeah. But in this particular situation, he was just a sociopath. So, you know, you do your job right, and maybe one day I'm in a restaurant, and somebody throws water in my face, and it's like, you're an asshole, and walks off, and you're like, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm an actor. <laughs> because you played this role that uh, that they hated um, you in. But I really struggled with it in the sense that I was trying to humanize him and make him figure out, like, okay, well, he can't be just an evil person i don't believe that everyone's just an evil person like you know but he really is a sociopath in my in in my opinion you know so i was struggling trying to find things that were redeeming about him the things that he did and things that he said and and were very narcissistic and self just uh, selfish, you know? I think you answered my next question, which was, you know, did, you, did you learn any insights into the character? But you pretty much just nailed it, you know, the sociopath yeah. and, you know, probably a guy that in his mind doesn't even think he's doing anything wrong. He's got to know because I remember watching this one interview that he had with Allison Mack and he talks about Hollywood, actually. And he talks about uh, how producers will sometimes take advantage of women and you know, how wrong that is. So if you can ca- see it in other people and go, that's wrong, and then end up doing it yourself, then you have to be aware of it to know what, what he did was wrong. And, and you know, where he is right now, he's got plenty of time yeah. to think about it. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully one day he'll be like, yeah, yeah, that was kind of shitty. Yeah. <laughs> I think anybody's ever going to get an apology from him because – I don't think he's he understands he, he gets it or he doesn't want to see it, you know. Yeah. I will say this, I did meet up with somebody who was in the Nexium cult. I was trying to get some information and and was really curious as to like that the inner workings of it. And they said to me that 
because he was a writer, the person I met with, uh, a writer director. And he said that, that Keith years ago pitched him a story and said, Hey, I have an idea for this film. It's about this cult leader who's a sociopath and takes, you know, um, advantage of the people that are in the, in this self help program and literally was like, describing who he is and what he's doing to people. And and maybe that was like, you know, they say sometimes people want to get caught or they 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 know what they're doing is wrong. Maybe that was his way of like reaching out, going, somebody stop me. You know, yeah, I don't. Wow. That's an interesting insight into that. Yeah. So, you know, I want to ask, you know, when you say you've played the bad guy before, I know that you have some experience with the writing, you know. So you wrote Lucy's, which yeah. in the beginning of that movie you really seem like a bad guy. And then, you know, later in that movie, you learn a little bit more about the character and that the reasons he's doing the things that he's doing. And so I I just want to ask you a little bit more about your experience with writing, because I I think it was a well-written film. I think that there was a lot of interesting insights into the, really the underbelly of a lot of the way things work as far as, you know, mob and, uh, you know, somebody owes debts to people and how you pay those off. And so very well written. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about how you felt about that film and also mm. the future for writing for you, if that is something that you're wanting to do more of in, you know, in the yeah. future. Uh, well, I just wrote, I just finished directing uh, my second feature, which I, which I wrote the first feature I directed. I didn't write, uh, but this feature is my second and this one I wrote. So I would love to do that more. I mean, it's, there's nothing more satisfying for me to be able to write and direct and create from the seed of it all, all the way to the end of it. You know, you have more control because an actor really doesn't have much control over anything. You know, they come in, you know, it's somebody else's story. It's somebody else's idea. You're, you have, you know, your own, you create your own character, but even that you're there to facilitate the director and the director's there to tell the story. So, you know, take example, running with the devil, like, uh, I created this character in running with the devil. And I remember getting this to, to set and like Jason and I we talked a little bit about the character, but not too much in depth. Uh, it was what it was on paper. And then it's my job as an actor to make that person pop off the paper, become alive. And, and, and so I remember the, when I first got there, I was trying to figure out his look and, you know, his demeanor and all that. And I was playing around with different looks in the makeup trailer. And I thought, you know, it'd be really fun if, uh, if he had a mustache. <laughs> you know? I didn't have a mustache at the time. So I was like, do you guys have a mustache? And the, the, the makeup artist said, yeah, I have one at home. We'll see if it fits tomorrow. Gosh, we're, we're, we're wondering where it came from. Like, <laughs> yeah, like going to be the next day I was filming so we didn't have much time and I didn't, I kind of sprung it on him because I just came up with that idea like the day before sometimes I mean there's often times where I, I do a lot of homework before and then it's different on every film so on this one you know because I had didn't have a lot of conversations with Jason about the character and I'd been thinking about the character and thinking about which directions to go in but still hadn't really formulated him and it was like the day before. So now it's like, it's almost like the finals are tomorrow and you're like trying to cram for the finals, you know? And so the next morning we put the mustache on. I said, have, have you guys talked to Jason about it? And they said, no. 
I said, well, let me go show him and see if he likes it. And he just had finished a, a scene with Lawrence Fishburne. And I was waiting for him to come down. And he came out of the building and he looked right at me. And then he kept walking. <laughs> he didn't recognize He didn't recognize you. He didn't me at all. And I was like, Jason. And he turned and he still didn't recognize me. And then he squinted and he's like, Peter? I was like, yeah. He's, oh my God, I love it. I love it. Keep it. But at the end of the day, it's his call, right? So it's my job to bring all the chips and, and stuff to the barbecue. And then he gets to decide what he wants to keep and what he wa- he doesn't. And so he just happened to like that. And, but if he said, nah, I'm not digging it, then you lose it, you know? So as a writer and a director, you know, you get to create the world. As an actor, you don't have as much. You're really at the disposal of the of the director. Can I ask you a question, just going back to Lucy's just for a moment, uh, yeah. watching it the other day? Where does the inspiration for that story come from? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's a fascinating character that you play. And like, and like Kristen mentioned, you know, at the beginning of the film, you know, it just seemed like a typical pickpocket and thief. But you realize quickly that, you know, you've been forced into this life. And I'm just kind of curious, like, where does this, where's the genesis of this story come from? Uh, well, Lucy's was a culmination of a, a few different things for me. Um, I mean, I, there was a movie that I, I loved. It was one of my favorite movies. It was called Love with a Proper Stranger that Steve McQueen was in. Steve McQueen, normally, you know, you... You look at Steve McQueen, you think of him as being ultra cool, stoic, um, still. But in this movie, he was very funny. And, and I don't think a lot of people think of Steve McQueen as comical. So, so in the movie Love of the Proper Stranger, he play, he's an, uh, he's a musician who gets this, uh, this woman pregnant. And in that time period, especially abortions didn't exist legally. So, it was a, the stakes were a, were a little higher in that movie than my movie, but I liked it so much. I, I kind of took that premise and then made it into Lucy's. Like, you know, when I grew up, I grew up in New York and, and being on the subway, it was a whole underground world of different people and uh, rushing to different places. And, you know, you had different cultures, different, um, you know, economic status, you know, you have, homeless people you have people in suits there are people playing the violin for change uh, another you know people playing the accordion uh there's all these stores down below it's this really weird underground city and and, and i and i loved it uh growing up in new york because it was always very special going down into this little underground city and and uh, and i always remember hearing <laughs> over the speakers you'd hear uh you know, uh, be careful, you know, with your wallets, there's pickpockets. And so I just got this idea of this pickpocket in New York and have him kind of be forced to raise to the surface, you know, somebody who kind of hid out underground and who was forced to come to the surface and, and live with everybody else, you know. So it's really a coming of age story for a 30 year old guy, a guy who, um, you know, lives, lives with his mom. He goes to work in a suit and tie every day. She thinks he's, he works on Wall Street, but he really, his office is the subway and he pickpockets all day. And then, and then you find out later in the, in the movie that he's not, he's only doing this because, uh, his dad passed away and left his mom with a lot of gambling debt. And so in order to repay that debt, he was forced to work, uh, for this one character. And so taking the premise of that and mixing it with, you know, the, the the theme of Love with a Proper Stranger, where in, in that movie, Steve McQueen gets this 
this woman, Natalie Wood, pregnant, I kind of mixed those themes and came up with Lucy's. And then in order to give it a ticking clock, one of my favorite movies too was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And in that movie, you know, the Butch and Sonny are always watching these guys that are about to catch him off in the distance. And they're always like, who are those guys? You know, and it just, these guys are chasing him the whole movie. And so I wanted to have that kind of pressure on, on the lead character, uh, Bobby. And so I created this character played by Michael Madsen, who's this police officer who got his wallet stolen in the subway. He was an undercut. He was under, you know, plain clothes cop at the time. So my character didn't know he was robbing a police officer, but he ended up, you know, stealing his badge. And so he's the laughing stock of New York City, this cop. And so Michael Madsen's character really wants to catch my character very badly. And so in the midst of trying to uh, suss out this situation with this girl that he uh, just finds out that she's pregnant. And then he also finds out that his mom met some guy at Bingo and is getting remarried. So his whole world is like upside down. And in the midst of figuring out his own his life, he's got this character you know, played by Michael Madsen, who's just always on his tail about to catch him. So that that created, for me, a really fun dynamic of all these characters. Uh, and then I'm, I'm a, I love kind of plot twists in the third act where uh, it's going one way and then kind of goes the other way. And so there's a little bit of a, of a plot twist in the third act there. Um, I'm not going to spoil it for people who haven't sure. seen it. Uh, and then the whole title is is a double entendre, really, because Lucy's is when you when I was growing up in New York, you could buy cigarettes for like five, ten cents. You could buy single cigarettes. You know, they were usually like cartons crushed, or guy at the bodega would take out a bunch of cigarettes and just sell them uh, sing, single cigarettes, and they call them Lucy's. And so you'd say, give me five Lucy's and maybe you get one Camel, one Marlboro. And, and so the the joke of the movie for me, which was never really mentioned, but, you know, the, the whole plot there is really that this character's such a commitment phobe that he, he can't even commit to a brand of cigarettes. Uh, and so the character's name also that he falls in love with happens to be Lucy. So there's a really fun scene when he meets her. He says, hey, uh, can I have a Lucy? And it's a really crowded bar, and she's a bartender, and she says, uh, how did you know? And he says, well, I know what. She says, my name, Lucy. <laughs> and so then all of a sudden, it kind of like this uh, this spark happens between the two of them. So, yeah, that was a, that was a really fun movie for me to, to write, and, and I was really happy to get that one off the ground. And, and a phenomenal cast. I mean, Michael Madsen, Vincent Gallo, Joey Pants, Pantaleone, we call him Joey Pants. He's been in so many movies. He was in Risky Business with Tom Cruise. I mean, the guy's a legend. William Forsyth is in it. It was a fun. It was a fun one. I worked in the restaurant industry for a very long time. I was a waiter for a very long time, and there was a great scene in the movie when you're trying to pay the bill, and the the waiter keeps coming back and saying, uh, "You know, this is not your name." And and the line that I remember just really stuck out with me. You're like, "Oh, this is the card I leave hundred dollar tips on." And as a waiter. I laughed out loud because I just said, yep, that's exactly how that conversation would have went down. I love that scene. Yeah. And then he says something like, uh, oh, uh, uh, of course, Mr. Fujimoto. Yeah. Or <laughs> I love it. I love it. Just walking around with other people's credit cards all day long. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a funny scene, too, when he's he, he basically in that scene, he has he's on a date. And the girl starts off by saying, it's so amazing that you found my my uh, purse and you know my, and brought it back to me i thought someone stole it 
In the meantime, he stole her purse and was like, oh, this girl's cute. And then called her and basically set up a date. So he's one of those guys that kind of is able to, you know, use stuff to get out of stuff, you know. And that scene, too, when Michael Madsen comes in, Michael Madsen ends up breaking up the date because he ends up raiding. You know, he finds out that my character's there because the credit card that was stolen was flagged. So he ends up showing up at the restaurant, and my character ends up escaping that too, is posing as a, a waiter. So it's kind of I had fun writing that and shooting that because it was always like, how can I make this fun so that he uses information to get out of the situation, you know? So, and I, I was wondering too, like, t- did he steal handcuffs off of one of the cops and lock the doors with those? Or yeah, what? <laughs> he's such he's a good pickpocket, right? So when he's walking by the cops as they're coming in, he's a waiter and he bumps into one of them. And he literally pickpockets one of their handcuffs as he's walking by. And then he drops the tray and handcuffs the door shut. Yeah, I love that. That was a great part. They're, they go to chase him and the door is handcuffed from the outside in. Yeah. And they're stuck inside the restaurant. And, and you got to think, I mean, as far as a guy wearing a suit on the subway, nobody's going to think twice. And he doesn't look like a pickpocket. So that was a good yeah. cover for sure, too. I mean, his old mom didn't know that he pickpocketed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, and there seemed like there may have been some some mommy issues with that character for sure. <laughs> oh, I'm Italian American. It's like every Italian American is like their mom is like super over. Uh, no woman's ever going to be good enough for their son, and like you know they often like are mama boys. Mama oh boys. yeah. Peter, working on both film and television, how different were the experiences between the two for you? I don't really find a huge difference at all. Other than this, when you work on big budget films, you have more time, you know? So maybe you're shooting four to five pages a day. And when you're shooting independence or television, you're shooting maybe eight, nine pages a day. So... You're doing almost twice the amount of work in a day than you would in a bigger feature film. Because in a bigger feature film, they can afford to take their time with stuff, shoot more angles, you know. As far as the acting, though, I mean, you're not going, oh, now I'm shooting a television show, I'm going to do different style acting. It's really just a medium of where you're going to watch it for an audience. It has really no effect on, on my work other than... You know, you're shooting a lot faster on on uh, television and, and independent films as well. I wanted to ask you, you know, throughout your career, what's been or what was the most challenging role that you had to prepare for? I mean, I I think all of them. I mean, there's no if I if I don't feel like the role is going to challenge me, then I I don't really I'm not really drawn to it. Mm-hmm. You know, so often I'll take on a role. Almost every time, and I'm like, how am I gonna pull this one off? <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, I I'm like, I don't know. When you're going into it, it feels very daunting because you're like, geez, I I don't know, I don't know what to do with this role. Like even with, you know, running with the devil. Like I said, it was the day before, and not for lack of preparation or laziness. I just hadn't decided exactly which direction to go in with them. You know, because sometimes when you're the lead of a movie it's easier because you have a lot more information, right? And when your uh, role is smaller or it's a big ensemble, you have less information. So you have more that you have to create, more that you have to like in, in your imagination, you know, because you're not getting as much information from the from the page. I remember doing a movie called Gangsterland. If you haven't seen it, it's actually really cool. 
little gangster movie, and I play uh, Bugs Moran. And I talked to the director a couple times, and, you know, it's interesting. My character was from Chicago uh, in that movie. He's Irish. And people are like, well, are you going to do a Chicago accent? And I'm like, there was no Chicago accent in the 1920s. Hey, <laughs> you know? forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the uh, Chicago accent you hear now is a culmination of all these accents over the years. But in the 1920s, you had people from Ireland. You had people from Italy. You had, you know, there was no Chicago. It wasn't prevalent because it hadn't, it wasn't, it hadn't been born yet. And then you're like, all right, well, are you going to do this like 1920s kind of like fast talk speak where, hey, I love you gams, babe. But then you sound like, <laughs> you know, so you're like, well, shit, like, what are you going to, what do you draw off of? And there's not a lot, a lot of information on that. I mean, I would go to the internet and try to listen to people from the 1920s, but they're all spoke very differently. And a lot of them did have that very fast kind of speak when you think of the 1920s, like, you know, let me, let me tell you, see, you know, it's like so kind of overdone because it feels now it feels kind of oversaturated and, and it's like, it becomes cartoony if you do it now, you know? So I sat there and I was, again, it was one of those things that I remember the night before just trying to figure out like which direction to go with. And you're just trying things out and playing with things. And so because Bugs Moran was the head of the Irish gang, I gave him a little Irish twang mixed in with a little bit of 1920s speak and give him his own kind of his own kind of accent which was kind of fun to create but it's a big risk you know you show up and you're like well if the director doesn't like it i don't have a backup plan i'm kind of screwed you know and so i showed up and i and i remember doing the first scene and you're i'm going god i i'm gonna throw yourself out there and, and uh you know, you can't go up to the director and be like, hey, how do you like this accent? And try it out. You know what I mean? You just go in there and you, you know, you're a little bit like Jason Cabell and you just kind of like go for it, you know? And so I remember after the first take, I did it and I kind of looked over the director and I'm going, he's either going to love it or hate it. And he walked over, he was like, I love it. <laughs> Great. Awesome. You know? So, you know, it's art. So there's no right or wrong. You know, some people look at like a, a Pollock painting and it's a bunch of splash of colors and they're like a third grader can do it or, you know, it's, it's really, it's really hard because, uh, you know, everyone has their own opinion about art. So there, there's, it's really hard to judge what's good and what's bad. You just kind of make it up, go with your gut. And then for me, I really try to commit a hundred percent because if you ever hold back, if you don't, and I'm going to go back to Jason Cabell again, if you don't have that full-blown confidence going in and just throwing it out there and going, okay, I'm going to own this 100%, then it becomes bad. You know what I mean? So whatever you do, and whether you're an actor or an artist or whatever, I always like, you got to do it 110%, you know, throw yourself into it. So I want to touch on a role, Can't Hardly Wait. I mean, what a classic teen movie from back in the day in 98 was that a role that was fun and exciting for you or is there something as far as your roles in movies as of lately that has been the most fun i mean as much as each one is the hardest to play each one is the most fun to play you know because at the same time you're committing a hundred percent to it 
So you're having a good time doing it. I have one litmus test when I sign on to a movie, and my litmus test is, am I going to be excited for the day's work ahead on my ride to work? And if I could say yes, then I, I know I'll have the passion to you know do the, the, the role. If I feel like I'm not going to be excited to, on my way to work for the day ahead, then I have to say no. No matter how much money they throw at me, and I, and I have had my agents really pissed off because <laughs> I've turned down stuff sometimes where like every time I turned it down, they would come back with more money. I'd be like, guys, it's, it's not the money. Like, I'm just not your guy. And then they'll try to convince me why I'm the guy. And I'm like, I'd be doing a disservice to your project if I'm just not excited. And then my agents say, well, can't you get excited because they're paying you this money? <laughs> I'm like, that doesn't work that way, you know? So, Yeah. That's that's my litmus test. So yeah, I can't hardly wait. At the, I mean, if you look at that movie now, there's so many people in it that uh, that have gone on to have some really wonderful careers. Jason uh, Siegel has, has like one line in Can't Hardly Wait, and he's he's such a great great actor and and uh, has had such a great career since then. But Selma Blair was also in it. I didn't even know Selma Blair was in it until like years later, because at the time, like. She's sitting on a bench with me, and we don't even have any dialogue together. I think she's just sitting on a bench, and I think I think they they say one line to me, and then they walk off. And so on the day you meet them, hi, I'm Peter, hi, I'm Selma, and there's another character, I think, on the bench with me, too. Before the iconic Jerry O'Connell comes and sits down, which at that time, Jerry, you know, I'd been around for a while, he was in Stand By Me, so I knew who Jerry was, but, you know, at the time, you know, you meet... Selma really quick and then all of a sudden years later she's like got this great career and I'm like oh my god that was Selma Blair that was in that scene I had no idea uh that was that was her at the time uh so anyway so it was a time where where someone the the kid who played the nerdy character uh that Charlie Korsmo ended up playing there was an actor who was cast originally in Charlie's role but but he he got fired after like a day's work, no fault to his own. Like he was a, a solid actor, but he was just, he looked like he, he was actually 15 and we were all like 21. I was 21. I had a baby. I was 21, had a baby. I was playing high school, you know, senior, but, but this kid was actually like 15. So he, he just looked so young next to all of us that it just didn't work. It just made everybody else look older. So they let him go, and then everybody kind of got nervous that, oh, my God, well, who's going to be next? You know, when somebody gets fired like that, it kind of just knocks everybody off balance. And so uh, I remember Lauren Ambrose was like, I think it's going to be me. And I was like, you're fantastic. You're not getting fired. Don't worry. And then all of a sudden I got called uh, from the directors. They said, hey, can you come? We want to have a conversation with you. And so I went into their offices and – I was like, oh, Jesus, like going to the principal's office. You're like, what did I do wrong? Uh, and you you know that a character, like one of the actors already got fired. So you're like, is this my, am I getting my pink slip here? What's So the two directors, Deborah Kaplan and, and Harry Elfont called me into their offices and they said, listen, we watched the dailies and we just want you to bring it up, bring it down. Like we feel like your character is not uh, grounded. And, and I was purposely playing him a little bit bigger because it was a comedy. And I wanted you to be able to laugh at the character and have fun with him and not just hate him, you know? So, you know, if you, if you look at like the karate kid, you, you know, the, the karate kid nemesis, you just hate, you know? And with this 
kind of movie, I wanted you to kind of have fun hating him. You know, I want him to be a character that you love to hate uh, and not just be like the jockey jerk, you know. But uh, and so I was purposely playing him a little bit bigger. And so I was like, oh, man, I, I don't know. I mean, I also based him off like three people that I went to high school with. So I was a little knocked off balance. You know, I had to work in two days and I'm sitting there trying to figure out, like, how do I play this guy? Because I had a very distinct way I wanted to play him. And now I'm like, I have no idea. And then the day they called me like the day before I was filming again. And they said, hey, will you come down to set? And I said, oh, geez, OK. Um, and they go, uh, look, we we had the editor cut the scene together and uh, we love it. So don't don't touch anything. Just keep doing what you're doing. So now I'm like, oh, Jesus, I threw out the character and then I had to like pull him back in. But I was actually glad that they let me play him that way because, you know, I, I, that character has lived on for many years. I get stopped on the streets. People yell out, you know, who's going to want you now, man? Duh. You know, <laughs> and uh, which wasn't written that way. It was just written who's going to want you now, man. And it just kind of came out that way. And I, I think I, I feel like I ruined a lot of girls whose name the panda's lives. <laughs> But it was, uh, it was a fun movie. The question I have then, you know, is there a particular character that you've played that you'd want to revisit? Uh, if I had to revisit some characters, characters that come to mind are Carlisle Cullen. I mean, he's got 400 years of history there. So that wouldn't be uh, – there's a lot to explore there. I, I like that he's such a, an iconic father figure. And I find that very admirable in, 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 in that character. And, and then – Dr. Cooper from Nurse Jackie is also like, I, I love doing comedy. So making people laugh and that character for me, was, it was so much fun to play because sometimes you would just lose it in the middle of the scene and start laugh crying and everybody would be waiting for, for you to like get your stuff together so you can continue. And like, you're just like, I want to stick a fork in my eye so I could like <laughs> stop laughing. But the, the situation or the, the, the dialogue would be so funny that you can't help yourself. I find that when you're doing comedies, it's a little more lighthearted on set, too. So I, I enjoy that. I haven't done a comedy in a while. I think I, was, I should look for one. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe something. I have to ask. One of the parts where you ended up cracking up and everybody's laughing. Tell me it had to be when you're doing the uncomfortable boob grab or inappropriate touch for your no, those <laughs> nervous... are always, those are always so uncomfortable for me. <laughs> <laughs> As the character and also as the actor, because I'm like, it's so weird grabbing someone else's breast because it's a sexual or like part of your body. But for him, it wasn't a sexual experience. It was a Tourette's. So when he did it, it was always like very uncomfortable for him. But the humor was watching him go through this uncomfortableness, you know, but a lot of that uncomfortableness is real because like. I mean, if you can imagine reaching out, putting your hand on someone's penis and then going, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't mean to. <laughs> You know, yeah, but I the one I can remember one was, it was when Eve Best was pregnant, and I ended up starting to talk to the her stomach and like, and then I and then I started talking because she's English, started talking an English accent to the baby, you know. <laughs> so a lot of stuff was kind of imp wasn't written that way, or we just impromptu something, and then she started cracking up, and then I started cracking. We couldn't get through it. It was really, really funny. So is there a particular role or character that you haven't played yet that you'd be interested in exploring? Oh, man, I get that question so many times. It's like, but I don't know, like, because if if I knew what it was, I would write it, you know? <laughs> so 
uh, I you don't know what it is until you see it. I mean, I remember I played um, Eric Weinmayer, who was the first and only blind man to climb Mount Everest. And and I and if someone was like, "Is there a role that you'd like to play that you've never played before?" I'd be like, "Yeah, a blind man who climbs Mount Everest," like as a joke because it seems so absurd. But but he did it, and it was like so admirable. Like I was so excited to meet him and play that role because it was so inspirational. And he's still climbing. I mean, the guy is incredible. I often get so inspired by people like him. I remember my one of my first jobs, uh, I was in college, and I was actually studying to be a lawyer in college uh, because the first time I told my parents I wanted to be an actor, they laughed at me because, you know, they're too – my parents were from Italy. They, my dad didn't come over until he was 18, and my mom didn't come over until she was like 18 or 19. And So I'm first-generation American, and, and telling my parents I wanted to be an actor is like telling them I wanted to go to Mars. Like I – I know nobody, our family knew nobody in the business, you know, I'm a kid from Queens, like, how do you even begin to start to be in the entertainment industry? It's so far away from like, what they grew up with, you know, I mean, my dad grew up in a village that didn't even have like, running water in his house, you know, so when they said that they laughed at me, the next time they asked me what I wanted to be, I said a lawyer. Because they got a lot of, oh, a lawyer in the family, you know. <laughs> My boy's going to be a lawyer. Yeah. So uh, so I was I had never done a high school play because I was super shy. And and I was in college at St. John's University in New York. And I, I was studying pre-law. And I, I went and worked for a law firm. And the lawyer that I worked for, his name was uh, Jeffrey Samuel. And he ran his own law firm. And his law firm defended the uh, transportation, uh, New York City transportation. So if you fell and slipped on the subway platform and you sued the city, uh, he, he defended the city, right? But he had no arms. He was a, he was a lawyer and, and he wrote with, uh, with his mouth. So he picked the pen up with his mouth and he wrote all of like, and he had beautiful handwriting, by the way. <laughs> and, and he wrote with a pen in his mouth. And then he would use he would use the pen to lift the receiver off of a phone and then he would slide it down the pen and he would talk on the phone then he would use the pen to slide it down onto the you know and i remember thinking to myself my god if this guy could succeed and be like the head of this law firm i should be able to do anything he was so inspirational i don't even think he understands how inspirational he was to me, but I admired him every day that I worked there. And then I remember there were some lawyers in there and they would have me like look up stuff in books and go, Hey, you know, cause they were always looking for ways to not go to court, you know? So they would look for, what do they call it when it's past cases? If that happened and they ruled in his favor, then you should rule in his favor here, right? Precedence. So I remember going, well, I want to go to court. Like, that's the whole reason why I'm drawn to being a lawyer. Like, I want to be like, you can't handle the truth, you know, <laughs> and do my best a few good men impersonations. And, and they said, they started laughing. They go, no, no, no. You never want to go to court if you're a lawyer because there's too many variables you could lose. So we do our best to settle outside of court or to make sure we don't get to court. And I was like, well, man, I, 
that's the whole reason why I liked being a, a lawyer. So I met this guy at the time, happenstance, I met a man, his name was Mark Amitson, and he was a, a manager for Willem Dafoe and, and Steve Buscemi. And he took some, he had acting classes that he would teach, you know, and I met him and I was taking like an acting 101 class at St. John's University, just as like a, an elective. But I, I thought I really enjoyed it. And, and then I started taking Mark Amiton's class and Mark turned to me and he said, look, I really think you, you have something. Uh, but if you really want to be an actor, you need to train, like you need to go to NYU or some school to to learn the craft, like a doctor doesn't pick up a scalpel and start operating. A lawyer doesn't just go to court and start, you know, talking like you have to learn it, you know? So he helped me transfer out of St. John's university and transfer into NYU. And I went to Tisch and I studied theater there. Now I had to go to my parents and be like, Hey, I'm transferring out of St. John's university and going to NYU and I'm studying acting. And they thought, well, my mom go, what are you, why are you doing that? And I said, because mom, I'm really shy. And as an, a lawyer, you have to get up in front of people. So these acting classes are going to help me. So like, <laughs> Spoken like a true lawyer. Yeah. So I was like, don't you know anything? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's kind of required. You have to study. I said, then you can go to law school. But the more experience I have as an actor, the better lawyer I'll be. And she's like, okay. So. I went to NYU and I studied theater there and uh, I never asked her, did she know if I was full of it or not? I should ask her. That's my <laughs> I'm going to call her up and ask her. That's awesome. That's awesome. We want to. As ask- a matter of fact, I'm going to call her right now. I'm going to ask her right now. Can I do that? Of yeah, course. Yeah, please. Please. Because I'm dying to know. <laughs> Mom. Let's see. We, we could talk. You could keep talking until. Yeah. Okay. Well, absolutely. We're genuinely curious about this as well. So, <laughs> see, she's home. Years later, NYU they asked me to give the speech to the incoming freshmen, and and I thought, what an honor, you know. And I I'm like 15 credits shy from graduating, so I asked my mom to come to the speech. I was like, hey, do you want to come? And NYU asked me, and she goes, well, are they going to give you your diploma? <laughs> No, I don't think so. They just asked me to do a speech. He goes, well, you didn't graduate. I go, yeah, I'm aware I didn't graduate, but it's a great honor. Do you want to? Do you want to come? And she goes, well, when is it? I said it's Tuesday. She goes, I have to do laundry on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, she's the best. Hi, mom. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm on the. I'm on a. I'm on a computer right now. I'm doing a an interview that's going to yeah. go out to the public. So you're on on the interview right now too is that okay why am i on the interview why are you on the interview because i want to ask you a question okay so you got to talk loud because i want to know the answer okay okay Okay. so can you guys hear absolutely and hello by the way can you hear them hello okay so when i said to you that i was gonna go to nyu and study theater and i remember telling you i was going to there to study theater because i needed to take acting classes to be a better lawyer did you believe me or did you always know that i was kind of lying and just wanted to be an actor i did not believe you <laughs> <laughs> you didn't believe me you didn't believe me but but you paid for me to go so you knew that i was taking acting classes because i wanted to be an actor uh, i knew you were going to be an actor you said you wanted to 
to get into another profession or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I said, what the heck is that? I said, no, I thought you were going to be a lawyer. <laughs> but, but, but when and I went... He said, no, that's not my, that's not my uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to be something else. No, but I remember telling you that I needed to go to NYU to study uh, acting so I could be a better lawyer, though. But you knew that I was just going there to be a, an actor? Yeah. You did. <laughs> She sent me to a good school to be a lawyer. So I'm, did I disappoint you with my life? Uh, not really. I, I always wanted you to do whatever was best for you. And if you didn't like it there, I guess you had to change. That's why my mom is the best. Absolutely. All right, Absolutely. I love you, Mom. I'll call you back later, okay? I love you too, bye. Bye. Uh, she's great because, you know, I say this about my mom, like, she was never like the person, the the mom that was like my, you know, my boy can do anything, and 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 like literally sat there and and was at every baseball game, and like my biggest fan. That wasn't my mom, but she never stopped me from doing things either. So she didn't say I could, but she didn't say I couldn't, and she was always like, whatever makes you happy is what I want for you. And I really, uh, I love that about her. And I kind of have that attitude with my kids. I have a very like hands-off approach. I'm there for them if they need me and I want them to succeed. But like, I never tell my kids, did you do your homework? You know, did you study for your tests? Did you do this? Did you do that? Like, if I see that they got a bad grade, I'll ask them why. And I'll say, did you, did you not study or did you not understand it? And they say, they didn't study. Then I say, well, that's on you. You got to study. If they say they understand it, then I can help them get by getting them a tutor or, or whatever. But it's it's so important to me as a parent now to like make sure my kids are doing it for them and not for me, you know, because that's what I had growing up. My mom never I mean, even to this day, she's not really impressed. She doesn't care if I'm an actor or if I work at McDonald's. She just wants me to be happy. You know, that's a great mother. What a great parenting style, too. I mean, that's how you should, you know, teach your children how to think. And that's, yeah. that's beautiful. I, I really believe in that. Like the kids, I don't own my kids. I'm here to guide them, to teach them, to, you know, be there for them. But it's not my job to ride them and be like, like if my daughter's like, I don't want to go to soccer today, I'm tired. Then I'll have a conversation with her and I'll say, well, you have a commitment to your team. They're counting on you. But if you're too tired and you really feel like that, your health is, in, you know, going to be affected by it then don't go but the decision is yours and i'm not going to judge you for it either way so we got to ask how many times has she been like yeah i'm not going (laughs) or has she ever come back and gone i've had times where i'm like i'm kind of like the dad that's like hey you want to take off tomorrow and go to disneyland (laughs) and i've had my daughter actually go no dad i have to go to school (laughs) like like i'm like who are you Like any kid wants to go to Disneyland, right? So sometimes it's like, hey, what up Friday we play hooky and go to Disneyland? And she'll be like, no, I got, I got, I got a, I got a test. I got to go, you know, and she's like in eighth grade, seventh. Yeah. So, but I admire that about my kids too. Like they do it, the things that they, they do for them, not for me. But if they need my help, I'm there. And it's not like I don't care. I just, I don't ride my kids and, and make them feel bad about themselves or, and I've seen that in parents too. And, and, uh, you know, when I was growing up, like my mom, 
my mom never came to any of my baseball games. You know, she was home doing laundry. <laughs> but for me, I'm there at every one of my kids' games just because I want to support them. And, you know, so I, you learn from your parents what worked for you and what doesn't. And then you kind of, I don't know if you guys have kids, but that's what I kind of take. And I'm like, well, what did I like? And what did I, what didn't I like? That's, that's incredible. And by the way, calling your mom, that was, that was amazing. Thank you for, that was like, I was, I was sort of nudging Kristen, like, this is fantastic. She's got that beautiful Italian accent, too. I love that. She's a sweetheart. Yeah. All right. So let me ask you this acting, writing, directing. Talk about starting a production company. Well, in the beginning, you're like, you run around town, you're like, can I have a job? Can I have a job? Can I have a job? And I'm, I'm very thankful and grateful that I'm in a place where, you know, I still walk around asking people, can I have a job in your film? Can I have a job in your film? But I'm also at the place where I can create things and give jobs. And it's way more satisfying to me when I'm able to create jobs for people. And I remember uh, when I did this last film, it's called Hour of Lead, and I was on set and I looked around, there was about 80 people on the crew, and I thought to myself, man, What's really exciting to me, whether this film, people like it, don't like it, whether it comes or goes, there are 80 people that I put to work just by putting pen to paper. And that makes me feel good, you know? And then I was in, when we were doing the, the score for it, we had 100 musicians that were laying down the score out of Budapest. And just, we had a, a Skype session and I was watching the passion on their faces as they played these, this, the composition of the, this score. And I thought, man, look at all these people that are so good at what they do. And now they have a platform to do it and they're going to be in this film and people are going to hear it. And that's, and, and it's so wonderful to me. Again, I, I put pen to paper and hundreds of people got a job out of it. And, and I want to do that. You know, that is what really drives me now. You know, I mean, look, I, I would love to be in a movie with Martin Scorsese directing and I'm not going to say no to that. You know, I'm not going to say no to working with, you know, Nick Cage and Lawrence Fishburne and Jason Cabell. But if you ask what I really get satisfied at, at this point, it's just being able to be the one that tells the story and also creates the story and also gives the jobs to people. Can you talk a little bit about some of the upcoming projects that the company's working on? Yeah. I have uh, Our Lead, which is about uh, two, two parents who go to the this RV park and their daughter goes missing. So it's kind of a Hitchcock thriller, a uh, uh, whodunit, uh, who took the kid. And, and it, to me, that's always fun because I love those movies where you're like, okay, he did it. No, okay, I think he did it. No, it's got to be him. And you're trying to figure it out the whole way through. So it's this puzzle because now it becomes interactive. You know, you're an audience member who's not just watching, you're playing detective. And I remember what my favorite book growing up, when I was like third grade, was Encyclopedia Brown because I was always like, I wanted to be Encyclopedia yeah. Brown. I wanted to be the guy that figures out the case. And, and I love, I love that. So, uh, you know, all my films are very different. So Lucy's was kind of a romantic dramedy. And the first feature that I directed was a movie called Breaking and Exiting, which was more of a romantic comedy. And I didn't write that one. It was a friend of mine who wrote it. And uh, the director fell out. And I, and then I liked the script so much. I was like, hey, well, you think the producers would let me direct it? Because I really enjoyed the script. And I sat with them and, and they liked what I 
had to say and they let me direct it. So, you know, the, the great thing about that was when I signed on to do it, I had a friend of mine, Ethan Embry, who I worked with in Can Hardly Wait, in uh, Dancer, Texas, and also in a movie called Rennie's Landing. We worked together a few times now. And I, and I didn't even know he was involved in, in, the, in, in this movie at all. And they said, oh, your buddy Ethan's playing the lead. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so fantastic. I love Ethan. He's like my brother. He actually drove me to the airport when my first daughter was born. I was doing a movie with him. So I call him up. I'm like, hey, man, I'm, I guess what? I'm directing the movie that you're, you're leading. And he said, ah, I was going to call him today and tell him I have to fall out because I, I got offered another film, which is a bigger budget. And I was like, oh, man. Uh, okay. So I was bummed. But, you know, I'm stuck now. We've got a week to shoot and I have no lead. And so I ended up giving it to a couple of actors that had some name value. And then the day after that, I had champagne problems because I had three actors who read it and liked it. And I was like, Hmm. now I got to decide. And there were two actors that had pretty good name recognition. But then I, I sat down, I had lunch with Milo Gibson, who is Mel Gibson's son. And I just really thought he's super charismatic. He's uh, handsome like his dad. And I, I felt like he was right for it. And, and I just went with my gut. I didn't even read him, like audition him. I just said, if he needs help acting, I could help him with that. And I cast him and he did such a great job at it. Uh, so that was my first feature. It's called Breaking and Exiting. And if you guys out there listening, if, if you want to check that out, it's on uh, iTunes. It was, it was a cool little flick. But I went with the, the lesser known actor. I mean, he had never done a lead role in his before but i liked the idea of giving him an opportunity because i've had people come around in my life and give me opportunities you know and so many times i lost out on the opportunity because oh well they went with the bigger name at that time and so i was like you know if i believe in somebody i want to be the one to give them that chance and uh and he didn't let me down he did a great job and so anyway i'm digressing our lead is starring thomas jane and Anne Heche as the leads. And I purposefully didn't put myself in the lead because I wanted to focus on the, on the directing. It's, uh, it's tough. I, I did give myself a smaller role in it because I thought it would be fun. But to be honest, it was very challenging to have to like all of a sudden drop everything as a director, go into hair and makeup, put on my costume, get in front of the camera. And then I felt like, well, nobody's driving the ship. You know what I mean? Like I'm here. I'm the captain of the ship. So it's very difficult to then get behind the camera. It was harder than I thought, but thankfully I, I took a small enough role where I was able to really focus on on the leads. Uh, Jason Patrick plays the sheriff. I play his deputy. So that comes out sometime next year. I'm just in post on that. And then I have uh, another film that I wrote that I want to do next year. It's called El Chico Blanco, which is kind of like a modern-day Scarface, about a white guy who grows up in a Hispanic neighborhood and kind of builds this gang and his best friend is a is a that he grew up with becomes a police officer and the and his best friend ends up having to go after him so i I, when people are like well what kind of films does your production company do i'm like it's kind of like my career where i've done so many different things that to me you know i don't want to just do romantic comedies or just do hitchcock thrillers or just do sci-fi movies it's like i want to focus in on really interesting stories with really with characters that are going to take you on a ride. You know, the stuff that I have is all a little different. You mentioned that the the one film is available on iTunes and I have a question for you and it's, 
I think something you could probably speak to is the, the industry as we know it is is really it's in the middle of a monumental shift on how people view content, especially with all the different streaming services out there. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this shift. I mean, you were working in the 90s when it was movies were home video, the, theatrically released. That's it. Now there's more options coming out every day. And I'm just curious as to when you think things are going to stabilize into a what I'll call a, quote, new normal. I don't know. I really don't. I mean, I don't think anybody has a crystal ball. Everything is changing so fast. I remember only, you know, not too long ago, uh, if someone was like, do you want to do a Hulu show? I'd be like, no. It was like Hulu or these streaming services were looked down on as even less than television. And now Hulu shows are where everybody wants to be. So it's so hard to predict. I bet you that YouTube right now is very much like, considered as as not like the hulu or the netflix it's like a lower tier but i i bet you that youtube in a couple of years you'll look back on this interview and it'll be as big as like a netflix or you know i mean i got a daughter who's 12 and she only watches youtube she's always on youtube it's hard to predict to me it's like look I really don't care where people are watching it as long as they're watching it. You know, I'm not as pretentious as someone who's like, no, you got to watch it on the big screen. I mean, there's certain movies it would be a disservice to not watch on a big screen. But people nowadays have a pretty big screen TV. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like they have these little tiny TVs anymore. And then there are VR goggles that you put on. It's like you're sitting in a movie theater. I mean, I put that on and it looks like I've got a a set of VR glasses that when you put on, it literally feels like you're sitting in a movie theater. So it's hard to say where you're going to watch it. What's important is that you watch it. You know, I don't care if you're watching it at home or in the movie theater. Like even this last movie, Jason Cabell's movie, I mean, it came out in theaters and also on Redbox and on demand all on the same day. And like not too long ago, that would be seen as like, oh, the film kind of went straight to video or whatever. It's not like that anymore. It's like if the movie is watched, uh, it's considered a win. There's so much content out there that it's like, hey, if someone's watching it, you're winning. You know, yeah. Because that means that out of all the stuff that's out there, they picked yours, whether they watch it on their phone or they went to the movie theater or they're watching on VR goggles or their computer, they're still picking your, your movie. Uh, when Brilliant and Exit first came out, this is a movie that, you know, I shot the whole entire film with post for $100,000. Uh, and I got it into 12 cities. 12 cities is pretty incredible for a $100,000 film. So I was really proud of that. And it was on uh, American Airlines. We got it into, uh, we, you know, it was on demand at the same time. That was a, that was a win because, it's, uh, it's tough to make a movie for that budget and have it come out so good that people want to put it into theaters, you know? You've seen bigger, you know, films that didn't, you know, with with budgets of like five to ten million dollars that don't make it into the theaters. So to get a hundred thousand dollar movie into the theaters was I was really proud of that. Breaking and exiting is such a deep plot and it, there's so much heart to it and it's such a eye-opening story into how two people going through something so crazy uh, find yeah. each other in that situation and it's opposite, but that they're both in need of, of a change. It's a great yeah, film. They're, they're kind of two misfits that find each other 
and uh, and they find love and they also save each other. Yeah. You know? We cannot even begin to thank you enough for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, man. This was so fun. You know, I feel like all interviews should be this way. Just like <laughs> sitting on the couch, you know, man. Skyping, hanging out with, it felt like just three friends hanging out. It was really nice. I forget it was an interview. So <laughs> I want to thank the listeners and I hope I didn't bore you to death or put you to sleep, but, but thank you for listening. No, listen, and we'd love to have you back on again sometime soon. So, you know, Thanks, man. and, and any, anytime you've got something going on, just get in touch with us and we'll, we'll be happy to, uh, to talk about it on the show. So awesome. Kristen, thank you as always. Thank you for having me, Dana. And my name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.